0: Arts. For some 60 years, the communications department has been serving the college and the surrounding Bethany community with Bethany News, sports, public affairs, and entertainment programming.
1: Welcome back, everybody, to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. Once again, your host, Drew Sayo, said to bring you the latest with your Pittsburgh Steelers, Pittsburgh Penguins, Pittsburgh Pirates, and more. I do apologize there for the brief delay in getting on air. That was due to some technical issues, but we are all squared away and ready to talk Pittsburgh sports as we are every Friday here on BBN Online Radio. Starting with the Pittsburgh Penguins who, to say the least, are terrible right now. Six-game losing streak, continuing earlier this week with losses against Boston and Buffalo. First of all, a Penguins team should never be losing to Buffalo unless the Sabres really start to drastically improve. And that might sound harsh, but this is a Penguins team that is so talented, they shouldn't be losing to Buffalo. And given how strong Boston is, I wouldn't necessarily be opposed to the Penguins losing to Boston under 98% of circumstances, I'll say. The loss Tuesday night falls into the other 2% that I didn't mention. The Penguins had a 5-2 lead. Let me repeat that. A 5-2 lead with just 8 minutes and 24 seconds left in the second period. All they had to do was see the game out, and they couldn't do it. Marchand scores a few minutes after Ricard Raquel does in the second period, makes it 5-3. The Bruins go on to score two more in the third period to tie it up, and then Lindholm with the game winner in overtime. That is a terrible, terrible loss. And as much as you can sit there and blame guys like Brian Dumoulin, Jeff Petrie, the defenseman, who maybe didn't necessarily play their best. You can also look between the pipes as well because Tristan Jari was subpar in that game. He has not been playing at the level that Penguins fans know he can play at, the level that the Penguins organization knows he can play at. That hasn't been happening so far this season. Maybe a few instances for Tristan Jari where he played well Particularly the game against the Tampa Bay Lightning. The game against the LA Kings. Those were two instances where you saw Jari play well this season. I'm not even going to... You know what? I will throw in the Coyotes game as well. Because they did have almost 30 shots on goal. So his first three appearances this season for Jari have been sharp. The last three have been horrid to watch. Edmonton, Vancouver, and now Boston. And for DeSmith, the only game that he played well in, somewhat well in, was the Seattle game, where he made 27 saves on 29 shots. Of course, the third goal for the Kraken then was an empty netter. DeSmith didn't play well against Calgary, although to be fair, nobody played well against Calgary. And he didn't play well for the later half of the game Wednesday against Buffalo. I mean, you can't give up five goals in a period. Now, I do realize and aware of the fact that two of those five goals were empty netters, but he's still giving up four goals that are on him. Four goals against Buffalo. Calgary, it was four goals as well. I mean, that just can't continue to happen where the Penguins are not getting what they need from their goaltenders. You can't win games if you're not getting solid goaltending. I don't know what's going on with Jari, but he's got to figure it out and figure it out now. Casey DeSmith, I've always been on the fence about Casey DeSmith and whether or not he's a talented goaltender and is capable of being a backup in the NHL. He has moments where he plays absolutely stellar. And looks like he can be a viable backup goaltender. And then he has moments like he did against Buffalo. And like he did against Calgary. Where he looks like he wouldn't even make the Wilkes-Barre Penguins roster. That's how inconsistent Casey Smith is as a goaltender. And that's how streaky he can be in the flip of a switch. And that has to change for the Penguins moving forward. Now... Speaking of what has to change, Ron Hextall and Brian Burke have to change the way that they are constructing this roster. There are a lot of talented players on this team. Don't get me wrong. But there are also several players Who are on this Penguins roster And do not Deserve to be Whatsoever You have Jeff Carter Who again Had a few games where he started out Really solid Or at least productive Has since dropped Subpar Back to same old Jeff Carter You've got Kaspery Kapanen. I know I've mentioned him in the same boat as Jeff Carter as someone who had a few performances where he looked decent. Not anymore. Back to same old Kasperi Kapanen. It's not getting it done. You've got Brock McGinn, who is being paid three million dollars, two, three million dollars somewhere in that range, to be a penalty killer. You don't need to pay someone even two million dollars in a salary cap league to be a penalty killer you don't and then you have guys like Poulin, paling o'connor who are trying to fight for minutes on the fourth line with bluger and that doesn't even include philip hollander down at wilkes bear valteri Pustinen, william neilander all in wilkes that are trying to fight for spots In the NHL, if Ron Hextall and Brian Burke really wanted to expedite the process of continuing to keep a contender in Pittsburgh, we would be seeing a lot of pulling. We would be seeing a lot of Drew O'Connor, a lot of paling, which we already are starting to see a little bit of. We would be seeing Valtteri Pustinen be brought up. We would be seeing Philip Hollander starting to get some minutes on the third and fourth lines. The only way this Penguins team is going to expedite that process is by bringing up younger guys who are going to provide a spark to your bottom six. Jeff Carter isn't going to do a damn thing. At this point, Kasperi Kapanen isn't going to do a damn thing. Brock McGinn hasn't and will continue to not do a damn thing. What are we doing here? What are the Penguins actually trying to accomplish? Nobody seems to be able to answer that other than saying they're competing for a Stanley Cup. Well, obviously they're competing for a Stanley Cup because they're one of 32 teams in the NHL. They brought back Evgeny Malkin. They brought back Chris Letang to keep the core together of those two and Crosby. Obviously they want to contend for a Stanley Cup, but winning zero games out of your last six is isn't going to help you contend for a Stanley Cup. It's not. And then when you continue to play people like Jeff Carter, like Kisperi Kapanen, like Brock McGinn, you're going to diminish your chances even more. And that doesn't even include the defense. When you look at how terrible, absolutely terrible, Brian Dumoulin has been this season so far, For the Pittsburgh Penguins on their top line, nobody in the NHL, defenseman or forwards, has been on the ice for more goals against this season so far than Brian Dumoulin. That's inexcusable for a guy who is being considered as one of your top defensemen is paired up with essentially the captain of your defense. In Chris Latang, you should not be leading the league as far as goals conceded. That's pitiful, absolutely pitiful from Brian Dumoulin. And there is no end in sight as to when he's going to start waking up and actually remembering that he has to play the game of hockey. And then you also look at the defense. And Jeff Petrie has been just as horrid. Jeff Petrie was brought over from Montreal in the Mike Matheson trade to try and bolster this Penguins defense, give them a little bit more size. Yeah, he's providing size for the Penguins, but that's about all he's doing. He's not helping them defensively. Petrie as well has been terrible for Pittsburgh. Marcus Pedersen is at the top of his game. I know in the offseason, it always seemed like it was going to be Marcus Pedersen that got traded, or Marcus Pedersen that made the most sense to be traded. And I've verbalized that. It made sense to trade Marcus Pedersen. And thank the Lord, I am not Ron Hextall in this scenario. Because... Marcus Pedersen is playing at the top of his game right now, and is somebody that should not be out of the lineup ever. And then you have Pio Joseph, Jan Ruda, Chris Letang. I mean, they're just they're kind of there right now. They're not really doing much as far as excelling, but they're not doing a whole lot as far as hurting the Penguins either. Now, going back to the forwards, Mike Sullivan, I have so many questions for you right now. You started the season with a top line of Jake Gensel on the left, Sidney Crosby down the middle, and Ricard Raquel on the right. Your second line was Jason Zucker on the left, Evgeny Malkin at center, and Brian Rust on the right. Now... Because the team is starting to struggle. The first thing you do is switch Ricard Raquel and Brian Rust because you think that's somehow going to change things when it is statistically proven that Ricard Raquel plays better on the first line with Sid and with Gensel. And if Guinea Malkin and Jason Zucker perform better collectively when they're on the second line with Brian Rust on their right wing. Mike Sullivan cannot say that he is actively helping the Penguins by having Raquel on the second line and Brian Rust on the first line. I know that Mike Sullivan was looking for any and every opportunity to put Rust back on the first line and Raquel on the second line. That doesn't work. Why Mike Sullivan will not get that through his head is beyond me. Raquel is much better on line one. Rust is much better with Malkin and Zucker because he elevates their game and he plays well with Malkin and with Zucker. It's not rocket science. You look at the Zucker, Malkin, Rust line. When they were together, they were flying, everything was clicking for them. They were one of the most dynamic lines in hockey, producing the highest level of expected goals. Let me rephrase that. Producing in the top five for expected goals across the NHL for that line. And you break them up? How the hell does that make any sense, to break up a line that is in the top five of expected goals produced based on how they are generating scoring chances and the dynamics of those three forwards. How does it make sense to break them up? How does it make sense to move Rust up to the first line and drop Raquel down to the second line? Like I said, I feel like Mike Sullivan was waiting for anything and everything to try and make that switch because – He is so stubborn and is so set on Rust playing with Crosby and Gensel. There's no need for it. And I'm not saying that as a diss towards Brian Rust because he is a tremendous hockey player, and I'm glad the Penguins brought him back in the offseason. But it is very clear that the second line excels when Brian Rust is there with Zucker and with Malkin. And it's very clear that Ricard Raquel as an individual, performs much better when he's on the top line with Crosby and with Gensel. Switching them is not going to do anything other than maybe boost Brian Rust's stats slightly. Through the early portion of this season, Jason Zucker is averaging almost a point per game with Malkin, and with Rust. There's no reason to change that. I'm not saying that I think Zucker's production is going to drop right now because Zucker is a tremendous player right now for the Penguins, and he is lifting up the quality of play on that second line. But when Zucker starts to see his production dip, And he's not getting the helpers that he used to. He's not lighting the lamp himself. We can come back to this very conversation and say that his production started to decline when Rust and Raquel flipped lines. And you can sit here and blame Zucker all you want for not producing when that happens. You can sit there and blame Malkin or Raquel for not getting him the puck. Or whichever pair of defensemen are on the ice at the time. But at the end of the day, when that happens. Because at this point, I feel like it's inevitable. When that happens, the only person who can take the blame is Mike Sullivan. And Mike Sullivan is the only one who's going to be able to justify why he made the switch between Raquel and and rust and at this point I would not be surprised if Mike Sullivan isn't starting to lose the Penguins locker room this is a Penguins team that is working to win another Stanley Cup before Malkin, Crosby, and Latang retire this is a Penguins team That does not deal with coaches who struggle well. You saw when Dan Bilesma was here. It took until November, December. He was struggling that year after several unsuccessful years for the Penguins. What did they do? They fired him. They brought in Mike Johnston. He was here for a few years, same time period, November, December, after several unsuccessful seasons. What did they do? They fired him, and they brought in Mike Sullivan. The honeymoon phase for Mike Sullivan is well beyond a done deal. I get he came in and helped the Penguins win Stanley Cups in his first two seasons in the NHL. I get that. But that's long gone now. That's a part of history. But it doesn't excuse the fact that the last handful of seasons – have been terrible for Pittsburgh. I'm not even going to count 2018 because at the end of the day, I'll chalk that up to the Stanley Cup hangover. That Penguins roster was exhausted and Washington was the better team in that series. But you have 2019, that was terrible. 2020 in the bubble was terrible. 2021 was terrible. And so was this past spring. All four of those series, the Penguins should have, one and one with ease and they didn't because of mike sullivan his decision making and also the past two years goaltending issues but now you're starting to see again the penguins struggle at this time of the season the honeymoon phase for sullivan is long gone nhl coaches don't usually stay with one team for very long And Mike Sullivan continues to be stubborn, set in his ways, and playing guys where they shouldn't be playing and playing guys who shouldn't be playing at all. I'm not trying to advocate for Mike Sullivan to be fired. I'm not saying he should be fired right now. All I'm saying is that this is something to keep an eye on as the season progresses and how much longer it takes if it hasn't already started to happen before he loses the locker room. And the justification for not firing him is always the same. He just signed a contract extension, blah, blah, blah. Who the hell cares? If Ron Hextall and Brian Burke are aware of the fact that he loses the locker room whenever it may be, as long as it is still during the Crosby, Malkin, and Letang era, Mike Sullivan will be out of a job before you know it. Because... Ron Hextall and Brian Burke Care more about winning a Stanley Cup With Crosby, Malkin, and Latang Than they do about Having to worry about Mike Sullivan's contract And what he's guaranteed For the next handful of years That Stanley Cup is more important to them Than anything else With 87, 71, and 58 on the roster They don't care about Mike Sullivan's contract status They can sort that out later And again, Mike Sullivan needs to change things now, start playing guys who are actually going to produce, scratch Carter, scratch Kapanen, scratch McGinn, and play the youngsters who are going to provide a spark, play Ricard Raquel on the top line, and move Brian Rust back to the second line. It's that simple. It truly is that simple. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. We'll step aside for a few minutes when we return. The latest around the NFL is we have lots to talk about as far as the trade deadline and more right here on the Bethany Online Radio. back here on the three rivers talk show the latest around the nfl looking at the trade deadline joined once again by dylan bazica dylan
2: welcome back and we got lots to talk about yes we do drew as you said the trade deadline was this past
1: tuesday man it was a lot of moves were getting made around the nfl absolutely it was by far one of the busiest trade deadlines in recent history i think i saw something from adam schefter saying it was the busiest trade deadline in the past 20 20- Twelve to 15 this years is
2: like something like 13 players got moved or something that's like the biggest trade deadline like moves in like nfl history and i was like oh okay that's interesting Didn't yeah
1: know that. certainly a very big deal so we'll, we'll start with the one that you were talking about off the air bradley chubb from your broncos being dealt you were excited about the first round pick that you got back for him
2: Yeah, I was very happy because we lost our
1: first-round pick in the Russell
2: Wilson deal. And, I mean, I think it's a win-win for both teams. I mean, Dolphins are going all in on this season, rightfully so, and trading for Bradley Chubb. I mean, we got Chase Edmonds, a very good, talented, young receiving back, a first-round pick, which is from the Trey Lance deal, so we'll get the 49ers' first-round pick. We would have got a second one, but since – thought Miami was tampering with Sean Payton and Tom Brady they had to forfeit that and it's a win-win for both teams Bradley Chubb is a great young pass rusher he's 26 he's going into his prime he's had some injury concerns in the past so he's not like 100% like I'm not I wasn't against the trading because I mean we got a first round pick if you got a first round pick for a 26 year old who has a bunch of injury concerns and just couldn't say rely
1: on it to be healthy. I mean, I think that's pretty darn good. Absolutely. And, I mean, obviously I know Chubb probably hasn't produced where he wants to since his rookie year. But the talent is there. The potential is there. It's only a matter of time before he bounces back. And Miami is going to get a big steal with him.
2: Yeah, and he just signed a five-year $119 million extension with the Miami Dolphins yesterday. He gets $63 million
1: guaranteed. That That's crazy. And then while we're talking about Miami, what a job their general manager has done recently. They traded with the 49ers. You mentioned in that Trey Lance deal. Moving back, they got three first-round picks in that deal. Used one to trade for Tyreek Hill. One to draft Jalen Waddell, and then the other they just used to acquire Bradley Chubb. I mean, that's that's an incredible roster construction right there from their general manager.
2: Yeah, I really like what the GM did for the Dol- for this year for the Dolphins. He really just, like, went all in, and I love that. I love when teams just go all in and say, screw them draft picks. We don't need them like the Rams did last mm-hmm. season. And I like how they're also going, like, all in and two, and they're really believing in him because, like in like past off seasons, like oh see our franchise guy we don't know and they were tampering with Brady this offseason like not really committing to him like this move really feels like okay is our guy we're going all in this is a year to go all in win a Super Bowl and go from there absolutely
1: and then while we're down south how about the Jaguars shocking the world and going out and trading for Calvin Ridley they got the 2023 conditional fifth round pick and the 2024 conditional second round Hmm. pick going back to atlanta and for those of you who are maybe unaware of this fact obviously calvin ridley is suspended for at the minimum this entire season he still has to be reinstated before next year because it's an indefinite suspension but calvin ridley was suspended because he bet on the falcons To beat the Jaguars. Yeah. And then they go out and trade for them. Go out and trade. I thought that was so funny when I saw that when like Rappaport tweeted
2: that. I was like, dude, there's no way that can be true. But like, I don't think anyone was expecting Calvin Ridley to get moved because I thought, okay, Falcons obviously, I mean, they're not really rebuilding. They're four and four. They're number one in their division somehow. But I thought, okay, next year you'll have London, Pitts, Calvin Ridley. And then maybe you can, you probably still have Mariota or maybe you go to Ritter be another good piece for your QB to have. They just trade them like that. I mean, I like the move from Jacksonville, though, really. It gives Trevor Lawrence another young weapon they can get, so next season they'll have Ridley, Zay Jones, Christian Kirk, ETN, Evan Ingram.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I think it's a win-win for both teams, honestly. Absolutely. It's, like you said, that was certainly one of the surprising deals, and that was one that kind of snuck in right at the very end before the deadline, too, yeah. that nobody, nobody saw that one coming. And then you also have the Bills and the Colts swapping running backs. Naheem Hines going to Buffalo, Zach Moss in a 2023 fifth rounder going to Indianapolis. And not that Zach Moss necessarily has been bad, but Naheem Hines is just going to give Josh Allen another weapon in that Bills offense.
2: Yeah, I mean, that trade, like you said, like it was a buzzer-beating trade. Like It really happened one minute before the, the trade deadline was over. And I was very surprised Naheem Hines got moved because, I mean, that Colts team, that division, AFC South, is wide open. They're only, I think, two games back from the Titans. And, and plus, with Jonathan Taylor having a very serious ankle injury, you need some depth at the running back position. Mm-hmm. But... Josh Allen getting Naheem Hines now. So, you have Naheem Hines back there. You have Devin Singletary, James Cook in that running back room. You have Stephon Diggs, Gabe Davis, Dawson Knox. And th- that offense is just – Isaiah McKenzie, too. Isaiah McKenzie, yeah. I forgot about Isaiah McKenzie. He, that offense is going to be insane. Yeah. I'm uh, kind of shocked. I mean, you got got Zach Moss, who's a very good young running back, and a fifth-round pick. I thought for sure like, Hines was going to be going for like maybe a third. Mm-hmm. just based on like his production this year and everything and I was
1: very surprised he got dealt. Well, if it was if it was just draft picks, it probably would have been a third there yeah. for Hines, but because Zach Moss was thrown in, it had to kind of devalue the draft pick a little bit there. And then was a little bit surprised by the move, at the same time also not really surprised Chase Claypool traded to Chicago for a second round pick it ended up being the bears original second round pick not the one that they acquired from baltimore when they traded roquan smith it's the bears original pick i understand chicago wanting to give justin fields a weapon but at the same time though i don't really get it from a Steelers' perspective Hmm. that trade i mean like we
2: said last friday i think I called it. I was like, oh, yeah, Claypool's going to get trade. You might get a second-round pick if you're lucky. And you did. And it's very surprising because you, you, you used a second-round pick on him. In return, you got a second. And I looked at that trade. I'm like, oh, they gave him the Baltimore second-round pick. Rappaport treated it. I was like, oh, no, they give up their own. I'm like, what are y'all doing? I'm like, Claypool ain't that great of a receiver, dude. He ain't worth that pick. Dude, you're, they're going to have two two picks in the top 40, dude, in the second round. Yeah, yeah. Three, if you include the first yeah, three, round and, too. Yeah, three in the top forty, dude. I'm like, what are y'all doing? Like, give them Baltimore's first or second round pick. I mean, plus that Roquan Smith trade was stupid too. You got a second and a fourth, and AJ Klein. Really? It's mm-hmm. all you can get for the top three linebacker in the NFL.
1: Interestingly enough, though, with the with the Bears situation, the Bears, I believe it was it was either Rappaport or Schefter, tweeted this out originally. The Bears did offer the second rounder that they got from Baltimore. But Chicago was told no by the Steelers. And Pittsburgh was going to go with Green Bay's offer for Claypool. And then Chicago came back at the last minute and said, actually, we'll up our offer and give you our original second rounder. And then that's when the Steelers agreed to
2: it. Yeah, I mean, that's more in the GM spot. I mean, huh, should I have Green Bay's second rounder or the Bears? You're like terrible. Yeah. See, that's kind of an easy decision. But And I mean, that's why they also wanted the Bears' second rounder over Baltimore's, too, because... Baltimore, if, yeah, they're going to be... That's going to be a mid- to late-round, second-round pick. Mm-hmm. Chicago, they're probably going to have, like I said, probably one in the yeah. top 40.
1: And for me, it's, just, it's one of those things that's just absolutely wild, because right now, the pick that the Steelers, as we said already, got for Chase Claypool... Is a higher pick than the one they used to draft him? Yeah,
2: way higher. You got him at what pick? Like forty something?
1: Forty nine, I
2: believe. Forty nine. Yeah, you're gonna have one like at like thirty six or thirty seven, mm. probably. Yeah. yeah, basically, you're gonna get a nice, a lot of nice young talent come next April. I mean, like I get it. You go get Clay Claypool, who's another weapon for Justin mm-hmm. Fields. But I mean, really, you couldn't draft one or something? Cause, I mean, there's probably there's better people in the draft you could probably get than Claypool right now. That Halen yeah. Hyadu from Tennessee, you could get him in the second round. That could be a g- good target for Justin Fields. You can get Jordan Addison and like all these other receivers that are coming up. I did not like this trade at all. Did not. I just thought the Bears were stupid. I'm like, if they would give up Baltimore's and something mm-hmm. else, okay, that's fine. I'll do that. You don't give up your own second-round pick. Like You know
1: y'all are not that great. The only, The only justification that I can see right now in trading for claypool giving up your own second round pick is they're sitting at three and five right now it's a very tight nfc this year they are just there's a lot of teams they are going to have to leap over but they're just one game back of a wild card spot that
2: is true because nfc's very weak this year
1: yeah you've got san francisco right now at that final wild card spot four and four Washington, four and four. The Rams are three and four because they've had their bye week already. Uh Tampa's three and five. Green Bay, three and five. Arizona and New Orleans, both three and five. They're all ahead of Chicago, though. Mm -hmm. But like we said, there's a lot of room there for Chicago to grow. And if Fields and Claypool can connect, then that's going to boost the Bears' chances to sneak in even more so. So that, like I said, that's the only justification there as to why Chicago decided to be that aggressive and Mm -hmm. go out and bring in Claypool. Yeah. I mean, I get it. I mean, you want to give your young developing QB
2: another weapon, but still your own second-round pick is going to be between 33 and 40. So, I mean, come on. Another trade I really was surprised by that made no sense, Minnesota – trade or De- detroit lions trading their star tight end tj hawkinson to their division rival minnesota vikings yeah i agree they gave up a second round pick this year and a 2024 third next year and minnesota got hawkinson a 2023 fourth and a 2024 conditional fourth round pick what the heck are you doing detroit like that move made no sense at all T.J. Hawkinson was the number 10 pick a couple years ago. He has been a great tight end so far. He's been having a phenomenal season this year. I mean, Mm -hmm. I know if you have him in fantasy, he puts up some big numbers in fantasy-wise. But you're giving Hawkinson to one of the best offenses in the NFL right now. The Vikings are in sole control of number one spot in the NFC. What is it? NFC? NFC North. NFC North. And... They're six and one. You had TJ Hawkinson to that dynamic offense. You got Stephon Diggs, Adam Thielen.
1: Stephon Diggs is in Buffalo. Oh no, so <laughs> Justin Je- my bad.
2: Justin <laughs> Jefferson, Adam Thielen, KJ Osborne, Alexander Madison, Dalvin mm-hmm. Cook, and then Kirk Cousins throwing the ball. That's a very good offense. Like the Vikings team, it's fun to watch this year too.
1: Oh, absolutely. The only thing that and before I even go there, like you said, it makes no sense to trade. T.J. Hawkinson, when it's very obvious that Detroit is going to be drafting a quarterback yeah. in April. Yeah, they're going to have a top three draft next year. They're not going to stick with Jared Goff from beyond this season. So it would make sense for your rookie quarterback who's going to be coming in and more than likely starting week one next year. Mm, I don't know. I think Goff will
2: start until midseason or something, and then they'll put their guy in. If you draft someone in the top three, you're not going to sit him a year. Well, I mean, Trey Lance did. Well, that's, that's that's the rarity. Mm, I don't know, Zach. Wilson didn't get thrown right out to the gate, right off the rip. They had Flacco for a little bit, and then they put Wilson in there. But it all depends to who mm-hmm. the QB is. Like, if it's Stroud, I think Bryce Young's the only one that's, like, pro-ready right now. Yeah. Stroud's not. He needs a city year. Will Levis doesn't. Isn't. Hendon Hooker will entri- entice people just because of the season he's having. But
0: mm-hmm. I
2: think Bryce Young's the only one that's, like, 100% you can throw out there week one. That's it.
1: But even aside from that, though, you would still want your rookie quarterback to have that elite pass no, catcher yeah, man, in that, TJ Hawkins. He's
2: a top five tight end in the
1: NFL, and he's yeah. been in the league for like two three years now. And then not only are you giving him up, you're giving up two more draft picks just to receive back two draft picks from Minnesota. I get the first, the, the second rounder in 2023 is higher than the fourth rounder you're giving up, and that in 2024. You're receiving a third rounder, giving up a conditional fourth rounder. So in a way, you're still moving up, but at the same time, though, if you're a team like Detroit, you need all of the draft picks you can get. That
2: you can, I mean, you're rebuilding. Like you need yeah. all the young talent you can get on that team because no one in free agency is going to be coming to Detroit. No, you're going to have to build within the draft and everything. So it's made no sense. The same old lions, man. Same old lions. Shaking my head, man. You can't I, even blame Dan Campbell. for No, that. you cannot. Dan Campbell's a former tight end. How do you think he feels
1: right now? Do you really mm-hmm. think
2: he wanted to trade T.J. Hawkinson away?
1: Absolutely not. Nothing's no. He probably. Dan Campbell pulled out his phone, got a call from the GM. Yeah, we just traded TJ Hawkinson. You did what? Oh, yeah, man.
2: <laughs> just storms into the freaking GM's office, starts, like, going crazy on him. Oh, yeah. Calls Hawkinson. Yeah, man. I don't really <laughs> want to see you win, man. I, I'm i to to see you in, like, two more games this year, man. you mm-hmm. ball out, Go win a Super Bowl. <laughs>
1: <clears throat> oh, I believe it.
2: And I then, love Dan Campbell. I just hope he doesn't get fired, dude. I love Dan Campbell as a coach Yeah, so much. They, just, he's, he's just in Detroit, I mean.
1: The, the Lions just have to trust in him and realize that this is going to be a slow but short process with Dan Campbell. <laughs> because like, you, like we've said already, the passion is there. The football IQ is there. It's just he's dealt a terrible deck of cards yeah. and has to, like we've said – Slowly but surely build his way up through the draft, and that's only <laughs> going to happen with time. And how about the Jets making a deal with Jacksonville, going out and bringing in James Robinson for a sixth rounder? It's conditional sixth rounder, but getting that running back depth back after the Brees Hall injury. After Brees Hall, unfortunately, tore his
2: ACL, league gets comes back and comes back to way he, he was this past season. I mean, I like the move for Robinson. I mean, I really liked it because I have ETN on fantasy. Now ETN is going to be giving all the reps, not mm-hmm. running back. So I was like, yes, finally. But it adds a nice, good running back to that room. Now they're going to be a running back by committee because you have Michael Carter, Ty Johnson, you have James Robinson, in that mix. I think the Jets will be just fine because Robinson can replace some of that explosive plays that Brees Hall has been doing. But it is a dev- it, it did suck for the Jets because they were having such a great year so far, and then that happened. It was unfortunate. Jets made another move on Tuesday with my Broncos. We traded um, a fourth round, 2024, fourth round pick, and we got defensive end Jacob Martin and a 2024 fifth rounder. Jacob Martin, he played, he was playing against Denver two weeks ago when the, when the Jets played up, came up to Denver and played us. He was very good. He got one and a half sacks, couple tackles. He's mostly going to be like special teams player mostly. I mean, he's another depth piece, too, behind – because we just traded Bradley Chubb. It would be a nice depth piece behind Browning, Randy Gregory, Nick Minito, and Jonathan Cooper. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's mostly going to be a special teams player. I mean, yeah. at first I was, like, I was like, oh, we made a deal with the Jets. I'm like, oh, do we get Elijah Moore maybe? Oh, oh my goodness. <laughs> I looked, I was like, oh, who's this guy? I didn't know who he was. But then I, like, watched some film on him and everything. I was like, oh, this guy's not bad. He's going to be a special team player for mm-hmm. us. Not too
1: bad. Or at the very least, just some pass-rushing depth maybe yeah. to fill in for someone for a few plays and different things like yeah. that. But, I mean, it's still a move that can pan out later on. It might not be this year, but who knows? He might fit in now with Denver and can find himself a spot. Yeah, he's from Denver. He's from the
2: Denver area mm-hmm. I, I saw or something. It's good to have another hometown kid back for playing yeah. for the franchise. And your Steelers, I mean, they made two moves on Tuesday, man. They traded for... Cornerback William Jackson III and gave up and got a 2025 7th round pick and you only gave up a 6th rounder in 2025 how do you feel about the mood
1: to help your uh, secondary out bud it's very I mean, much needed f- yeah first of all absolutely secondary help for the Steelers right now is much needed Levi Wallace has been disappointing so far this year Akello Witherspoon when he's been healthy has been a disappointment and so the Steelers they, we really needed that Secondary help. I know William Jackson has had his struggles in Washington. I know there was a lot of discrepancy there as to if he was even going to be dealt or if the commanders were just going to flat out cut him. But for me, I see this as a low risk move that mm-hmm. can really only help the Steelers. And quite honestly, I see this move for William Jackson. Being very similar to the one the Steelers made a few years ago Joe when Hayden. they went out and brought in yeah, Joe Hayden,
2: I think so. I think so. I mean, plus you got to realize too, this could just be like a one-year rental, possibly because he did sign a three-year, forty-two million-dollar extension last summer. So, do y'all want to keep him? I mean, he is he is thirty now.
1: So, I mean, I mean, I think it just depends on how how he performs over the final yeah. half of this season. If he's somebody the Steelers think like Hayden can continue to elevate the. Quality in the secondary, they'll sign him. Maybe not three years, fourteen million dollar, forty two million dollar. He money. has an
2: option too. I think it's like a twelve million dollar player option that he can pick up. So yeah, but he'll be here next year. I mean, next season though. I mean, you'll have Witherspoon, William Jackson the third, Levi Wallace possibly Cam Sutton. Cam Sutton. You have TJ Watt back. Everyone mm-hmm. will be healthy. Yep. Defense might be pretty nice. And plus, all them draft picks you are going to have yeah. invested into your offense. Hopefully, like. Offensive line, maybe. Yeah. Maybe get another receiver who plays Claypool. Unfortunately, the TikTok era in Pittsburgh is over. <laughs> but Steeler fans are very happy that's over.
1: <laughs> See, honestly, that that whole thing for me was just a story that – a non-story that became a story. And that was something that was highlighted because the team was struggling. Oh, let's find something to blame their struggles on. Mm-hmm. Oh, Juju and Claypool are doing TikToks. There's our, there's our outlet.
2: Yeah. Yeah. All the Sealer yeah. fans were like, oh, Claypool and Juju, man, the TikTok thing and everything. They were goofing around. I'm mm-hmm. like, dude, come
1: on. You guys just thump. Just admit it. Just admit it, fans. But, you know, I've been thinking, we talked about Chicago going out and acquiring Claypool, saying that they were only three and five, one game back of the wild card. Now that I think about it, that logic doesn't even make sense mm-hmm. because they, I mean, from an offensive perspective, it does. But when you look at the team perspective, trading away Roquan Smith and also trading away Robert Quinn, so you're going to improve your offense at the deadline. Your defense is going to be horrible yeah. at the bottom of the barrel. But then you're going to hurt your defense. I mean, like you said, what is Chicago trying to do? And if that's – and the thing is, the move for Claypool was made after the – Move to trade away Robert Quinn mm-hmm. after the move to trade away Roquan Smith. Smith. So, why, and, unless the Bears tried to go out and acquire defensive help and it just never happened, what were they? What were they thinking?
2: I, mean, I think they just wanted to get some more weapons on Justin Fields to kind of make him happy because I mean mm-hmm. the season has been very disappointing for the Bears and their offense. Like it looks good at times. Yeah. I mean you got Darnell Mooney. You got Nikhil Harry's there. Claypool's there now. Who else is there? I'm trying to think. Khalil Herbert and David Montgomery's a good one-two punch they got back there. Cole Komet, a young, upcoming tight end. Mm-hmm. And then, I mean, it's a young offense. It, it's good. Like, I like – it's fun to watch mm-hmm. at times. But their defense, I'm like, what are we doing?
1: So let me ask you this then. Do you think Chicago – only went out and acquired claypool so that they can sit there and say well at least green bay didn't get him." yeah and i'm glad you brought the green bay thing up i was very surprised that
2: the packers did not make one single move at all on tuesday i mean dude y'all are three and five you have the same record as the bears you have a tough upcoming slate coming up blizzard has been out you don't have a clear-cut number one dude I mean, I thought Brandon Cooks, they were talking about, oh, Brandon Cooks is going to get traded. I'm like, oh, he's going to Green mm-hmm. Bay 100%, has to. DJ Moore, he might be going to Green Bay. Okay, let's do it. Well, mm-hmm. They thought
1: Brandon Cooks might go to Chicago, too. Yeah, after
2: Chicago, they... too. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, I'm like, good freaking GM for the Packers. Like, do you are you, like, real confident in that receiver room? I mean, it doesn't look like Rodgers trusts no. any of those. I think he trusts Lazar a little bit, but... Dude, he will not throw to any other receiver, dude. It is insane.
1: Yeah, dude, he'll I,
2: throw it more to Aaron Jones out of the backfield. than he'll throw it to like Romeo Dobbs or like Christian Watson and that mm-hmm. all that. I'm like, what are y'all doing? I mean,
1: Dobbs had a couple of catches Dobbs had a Sunday nice touchdown night against yeah
2: Sunday night he against did.
1: Buffalo. Yeah, mm-hmm. but like you said, I mean, there's very little chemistry there. Some with Lazard, he's got some with Dobbs that it's, they're starting to build. Dobbs, oh, yes, some caught. Yeah, but. Other than that, I mean, Randall Cobb isn't a difference maker. Alan Lazard isn't a difference maker. He's a number two. Lazard is yeah. a clear-cut
2: number two guy. He's not a number one. They need a clear-cut number one guy. But I mean, I think
1: Dobbs is someone who— Dobbs is ha- nice.
2: He's going to be nice. He has
1: the potential to be that number one guy. He could. He's not there yet, mm-hmm. but he certainly and He's only a rookie. I mean, yeah. He looks
2: nice so far, rookie. He's flashed. But, mm-hmm. I mean, do you have Aaron Rodgers. He's not going to be playing much longer. No. Maybe not. Who knows? Heck, he might even be done after this year. There's speculation he might retire, but I doubt he does. But, mm-hmm. I mean, you have Aaron Rodgers, dude. Like, they have not given him good weapons at all in his entire career. Yeah. They have not drafted a first round receiver in, what, I think 2003 or
1: 2002? Something surprised me. Something
2: like that. I mean, like, come on, y'all. Like, y'all have to make the most. You have Aaron freaking rogers dude one of the greatest qb's of our time you're gonna give him no weapons at all
1: like what are you doing yeah and it just doesn't make any sense it was like you said you're right on the money 2002 when they took javon walker i mean what are you what are you doing you know you got the one super bowl out of aaron Rodgers. we're not going to say any more than that (laughs) but yes I still will never forgive Rashard Mendenhall. <laughs> but that's a story for a different day. You got the one Super Bowl out of Aaron Rodgers. Is Green Bay seriously accepting just one Super Bowl in the Aaron Rodgers era? Yeah, I think so. Because if that's true, then... That's pathetic. I mean, they they need to clean house if they're happy with one Super Bowl during Aaron Rodgers' Yeah, I mean, time. he's only gotten one. I
2: mean, he hasn't been to another one in no. years. When was it, Two thousand two thousand 2010. 2010 was the last time he did it. I mean, he, they've had good—I mean, they just can't mm-hmm. do nothing. In the postseason, they'll go crazy. Yeah. Like, recent memory, like, they'll have, like, top three seed in the NFC. Yeah. And then they'll lose in, like, the first or second round. Yeah, they're one and done. Yeah, I mean, I mean regular season team, just like the Saints
1: are. yeah. Actually, it was 2011. It was the 2010 11. season okay. and then the Super Bowl in 2011. But the point still stands. I mean, yeah. that's the one and only time that Rodgers has made a trip to the Super Bowl. And like we said, you know, half the time they're one and done now in the playoffs. I mean, what what does that accomplish? I mean, if, you know, like we said, Rodgers can only do so much in the regular season to get them in that position for the playoffs and then come playoff time it never works out in Green Mm-mm. Bay's favor. No, never. I and mean, then to so he's coming off back-to-back MVP
2: seasons, and you get rid of a top-five receiver and his favorite target in Devontae Adams? Yeah. And, like, are they against drafting, like, a receiver in the first round, dude? Because I'm like, what is going on? Like, they've passed up on some good receivers recently. Mm-hmm.
1: And it makes no sense. Honestly, right now, you could make two NFL memes – off of the same template. You know that one meme template where it's like you have the choice between doing something and drawing 25 UNO cards? Mm-hmm. You could make that meme right now with Green Bay drafting a wide receiver in the early rounds, and you could make that same meme for the Steelers when it comes to offensive linemen.
2: Yeah, he most definitely could. It's just, it's just crazy how they
1: won't I mean, give him good weapons. Do that at all. It's insane. I know, and it just... As much as I don't really... I say this because I'm not necessarily the biggest Green Bay fan. I mean, I don't mind them per se, but Aaron Rodgers, at the end of the day, needs to—he needs to be in the Super Bowl more often, and he needs to have the weapons around him.
2: Yeah, I mean, what are the, what are the best case scenario now? Are you hoping Odell Beckham Jr. signs with
1: them? Maybe yeah. salvage
2: the season, maybe. Or who else is out there in free agency? I mean, you're going to have another free agent receiver, or? What are you all going to do? I have
1: no idea, and its I wouldn't be surprised at this point if Green Bay doesn't know what they're
2: doing. Now, they've seen something. Uh, Vaughn Miller, who's a good friend of Odell, mm-hmm. he, posted a, he posted a picture on Instagram today of uh, him and Odell holding a Super Bowl trophy up, and it's yeah. like, reunion, question mark. I was like, dude, no. no. <laughs> I, mean, I love Vaughn. I really want him to get a third Super Bowl. That'd be awesome. It'd be one of the first time ever a defensive player has gone to three different franchises and delivered a Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. So that would just solidify his Hall of Fame
1: status even more, even though he already is. Could you imagine Josh Allen with Odell Beckham and Stephon Diggs and Gabe Davis? Yeah, Dawson Knox, Isaiah McKenzie, Naheem Hines, Isaiah McKenzie.
2: Dude, you'd have Phil to give Kansas City a run for their money. Same with the Dolphins.
1: If that if that was Buffalo's offense going into the playoffs, every team would essentially have to utilize a dime package defensively every play.
2: 100%. They'd have to do the dime package all the time. Oh, "Oh, I'm going to shut down Mm -hmm. this guy. Oh, guess what? This dude's uncurried. We'll go there. And then, oh, they shut down the passing game. Guess what? we got Naheem Hines, Devin Singletary, and James Cook. Yeah. Go crazy, boys. And then we'll just run the ball down your throat because you don't have enough in the box. Exactly. That team is Brandon Beans done a phenomenal job building that Bills Mm -hmm. roster. So,
1: So great. Absolutely. We're going to step aside here on the Three Rivers Talk Show when we return, looking at the baseball side of things with the Gold Glove nominations being announced and then also an update on the World Series right here on the Three Rivers Talk Show.
0: She's a good girl, who's crazy about Elvis, loves horses, and her boyfriend too, and this
1: back here on the Three Rivers talk show the latest now with Major League Baseball's World Series as the Astros and Phillies continue to fight in the annual Fall Classic a chance for the Astros tomorrow night to win the World Series with Zach Wheeler and Fromber Valdez on the hill in Minute Maid Park The Phillies blowing it and what momentum they had after winning game three, 7-0 over the Astros. And then you have Wednesday's game where they got no hit the entire game. It was a combined no hitter. And then last night's contest, losing three to two. First of all, this is the World Series. How do you get no hit? Especially when you look at this Phillies lineup. Kyle Schwarber, Reese Hoskins, JT Realmuto, Bryce Harper, Nick Castellanos. That is a talented and absolutely incredible top five in a batting order. And they get no hit the entire game. Like, how? I can't even process that. And then Aaron Nola didn't necessarily have his best stuff that game. Three earned over four innings. And then Phillies went to Jose Alvarado out of the bullpen. Just didn't work out for them then either. And then last night, they got, the Phillies did, a little bit of a shorter start than they probably would have expected from Noah Syndergaard. Only going three innings, giving up two earned runs in those three innings. Syndergaard only threw 44 pitches. I don't know if the Phillies are going with a pitching-by-committee approach in this World Series, but it's not winning them games, that's for sure. When they won in Game 3 against the Astros, they had their starting pitcher, Ranger Suarez, go five innings. When you look at... The previous games, when they won the opener 6-5, they had Nola going four and a third. That game was pretty much won by the offense. Even the game they lost, game two to the Astros, Zach Wheeler went five innings. So I'm not exactly sure what the Phillies are trying to accomplish these last few games, but now their backs are against the wall. There's one way for them to be world series champions and they have to win the next two games tomorrow night and Sunday. Zach Wheeler's taken the hill for the Phillies. As I mentioned, from Valdez for the Astros and from Valdez, is an incredible, incredible pitcher for Houston. He has pitched once in this series already. Just a matter of when he pitched. believe it was game two. Yes, it was. Six and a third. Gave up just one earned run, nine strikeouts, three walks, and four hits. And that was when Houston beat Philadelphia 5-2. So that Phillies lineup is really going to have to work now to get the better of Framber Valdez. Otherwise, Houston is victorious. I think the Phillies still have a decent shot if they can sort things out offensively. And Zach Wheeler has the game of his life. And then when you get to Game 7, anything can happen. But it's definitely an uphill battle for the Phillies. And they're going to have to work and have to earn their spot as World Series champions now. Not that the Astros haven't and that they won't have to in game six tomorrow night, but they have the advantage. Momentum is on their side, winning the last two. And now life is harder for the Phillies. I want to move on to... The Gold Glove Award winners, and this was a conversation that I felt like we were going to have to have. We shouldn't have be having it right now, but unfortunately, we are. Key Brian Hayes was nominated for the NL Gold Glove at third base. It doesn't even matter who the third person was in the competition because it was between him and Nolan Arenado. And Key Brian Hayes lost to Arenado. When you look at Sabermetrics, Key Brian Hayes had a defensive index of 16. Arenado had a defensive index of 13.3. Now, I will be the first to admit, I don't exactly know what all is taken into account to create the defensive index stat. That's something that I can still improve upon as far as my knowledge of baseball and I will be the first to admit that. But it doesn't take a genius to realize that the greater the defensive index, the better that player is, and 16 is much greater than 13.3. And yet Hayes didn't win a gold glove. You have Hayes, who led all positions in Major League Baseball with 24 defensive runs saved. Meaning, however many runs the Pirates gave up all season, if Key Hayes didn't play a single game, you would take that number and add 24 runs to that tally. The next highest number was Brendan Rodgers of the Rockies with 22. When you look strictly at third baseman, Hayes was five better than second place which was Arenado at 19 I mean what more does Hayes have to do he also led all of third basemen in baseball with 18 outs above average there's no way keep Brian Hayes should not have won the gold glove And this is where baseball really sucks. Because Arenado won the gold glove based on what he did in the past. And the fact that he has the name Nolan Arenado. If that was not the case, if you're looking at this season alone, Hayes is by far the better defender. I don't care if Arenado played X number of games more than Hayes. And if anything, him playing more games makes Hayes' stats look better at the fact that he played more games than Hayes and still had less defensive runs saved. He played more games than Hayes and still had less outs above average than Hayes. More games and a smaller defensive index than Hayes. But yet it's Arenado who wins the gold glove over Hayes. There is zero, absolutely zero, justification as to how Arenado won the gold glove other than the fact that his name is Nolan Arenado and what he has done in the past. If someone tries to justify Arenado winning a gold glove by using anything about offensive production and the way that Arenado hit compared to Hayes I'm just going to be straight up here if somebody ever tries to use that justification you can tell them to shove that justification up their ass because we're talking about a gold glove meaning who is the best fielder at each position in baseball in the National League and who is the best in baseball at each position in the American League. And then once you have all of the gold glove winners, then you give the platinum glove, which is the best fielder in all of baseball. Where in either of those descriptions of gold glove or platinum glove does it mention anything about production at the plate? Newsflash, it doesn't. So why is production at the plate being used to justify why Arenado won a gold glove that is strictly a defensive award, and yet we're bringing hitting into it? This is not the Silver Slugger Award. If it was Silver Slugger, I would have no problems with saying Arenado was a better hitter. He deserved to be Silver Slugger. But this is the gold glove. And Hayes lost to Arenado because of Arenado's name and the fact that some people try and justify someone winning a defensive award based on production at the plate. There's no other way around it. I mean, it's just terrible for the game of baseball. And the thing is, too, like I said, since Hayes didn't win the gold glove, he's not eligible for the platinum glove. You have the guy leading all of baseball in the Sabre defensive index, outs above average, and defensive runs saved. That right there, in my opinion, the fact that Key Brian Hayes is 3-for-3 three three in those categories that right there should be enough to say nl gold glove at third base and platinum glove i mean how much more does key brian hayes need to do to prove his worth defensively i'm not talking about his production at the plate because everyone knows That his production at the plate needs to improve. But how do you not give someone the NL Gold Glove and the NL Platinum Glove? I do want to clarify that because there's an AL and NL Platinum Glove. How do you not give someone both of those awards when they are by far the best defensive player in the game of baseball? He obviously had... Enough innings played, enough games played to even be nominated for the damn award. But yet, he's not given the award as far as the winner goes. That is BS. Complete and utter BS. There's no way around it. Key Brian Hayes was robbed of the NL Gold Glove. There's no questions about it whatsoever. Last year, it was a debate of whether or not he was going to win over Arenado. There were some stats Hayes was better, some stats Arenado was better. They opted for Arenado. Did I agree with it? No. Did I respect it? Yes. Because Arenado had some better statistics, and that was what they used to make their decision. But that's not the case this year, or that wasn't the case this year. I'm still trying to wrap my head around this entire thing as to how Arenado wins the gold glove. And I'm going to be even more upset if Arenado wins the platinum glove because he shouldn't have even been in the conversation for a platinum glove since he didn't deserve to win a gold glove. Like I said, this is why baseball sucks. This is why baseball is broken. All of these awards... Or a popularity contest nine times out of ten. That's why Yadier Molina has won so many gold gloves when he may not have even been the best catcher in baseball that year, but he won them because of his name, Yadier Molina. And no wonder baseball is dying. No wonder baseball is losing its audience. Not only because of things like this, but also the parity between teams in various markets. You don't have this issue in the NFL. You don't have this issue in the NHL anymore. Since 2004, 2005, that issue hasn't existed. You don't have this issue in the NBA. But it's there in baseball. Because the owners will not push for a salary cap, salary floor system with expanded revenue sharing. And the players don't want to give up their opportunity to make $40 million a year which if you really think about it they still could it would just be a little bit more of a detailed contract negotiation and if you want proof of that you can go talk to Patrick Mahomes Garrett Cole whoever it may be in baseball that has a contract that large there are ways around a salary cap floor system to make $30-40 million a year It just takes a little bit extra negotiating between your agent and the general manager. That's why I said when baseball went into their lockout, I would have had no problems if they locked out this entire year. If it meant getting a salary cap and floor system in place. I would have hated to see no baseball all summer at the major league level. But it would have been for the good of the game. That's why hockey had a season-long lockout because the owners knew that the cap floor system was going to be good for the game, and eventually the players budged and gave in. Now, I do realize there are areas where the owners in baseball need to be a little bit more understanding and willing to work with the players. But a salary cap floor system is long overdue and needs to be inserted into baseball ASAP. And I'll leave it at that. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. We'll step aside momentarily. One more segment coming up, looking at the Steelers specifically now, going a little bit more in-depth with the Chase Claypool, William Jackson the Third deals, along with... A lack of accountability from the entire organization coming up next here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. Back here on the Three Rivers Talk Show. One final segment Pittsburgh Steelers football. As you heard during the NFL discussion, the Steelers made two trades Claypool to the Bears for a second round pick in next year's draft, and then William Jackson, the third, from the Washington Commanders to the Steelers, swapping late round picks. The Steelers getting a 2025 seventh rounder in addition to William Jackson. The Steelers giving up a 2025 sixth rounder to the Commanders. I'll start with the William Jackson deal. As I said already, this is a move that is only going to help the Steelers secondary. Jackson had his issues in Washington, he had his issues in Cincinnati. But Levi Wallace, terribly struggling this year. Akela Witherspoon, when he's healthy. Struggling in his own regard. The Steelers haven't gotten a whole lot from Cam Sutton either. Not as much as they probably would like to and are expecting. So they have to go out and bring in secondary help. William Jackson was going to be released by the commanders if they didn't find a trade partner. The Steelers stepped in. I get that. I have no problems with them making that move it's a very low risk high reward type move similarly to what they did when they brought in joe hayden they got a few good seasons out of hayden and then they moved on from him when he wasn't performing that's what the steelers do when they bring in guys like william jackson and i'm fine with it that's who they are but Again, it speaks to how poorly the Steelers are when it comes to drafting and developing corners, which is a conversation for an entirely different day. I think Jackson is someone that can come in. He's going to help the Steelers. He might struggle at first, like Akela Witherspoon did when he first came over from the NFC West. He might struggle. But then he's going to take off, and I feel like he will thrive given that he's played for Cincinnati, knowing what AFC North football is like, and he is going to, in my opinion, going to end up helping the Steelers secondary this year and moving forward. Now, where it becomes tough is the point that Dylan brought up earlier about his player option, right around $12 million. That's going to be the tough one because the Steelers, unless he goes out and plays like a top-tier corner in the NFL, the Steelers aren't going to want to pay him $12 million next year. I get they're going to have a lot of cap space, but they're not going to want to pay him $12 million. So then the question becomes, do they turn down his player option and then try to re-sign him in free agency, or is this truly going to be a rental for William Jackson? I could see it going both ways. Omar Khan isn't gonna to want to pay him $12 million unless he plays at Jalen Ramsey's level these next eight games. And then if that's the case, you pick up your that player option and you take it to the bank because you're getting a bargain. But if Jackson goes out there and plays like he did the first half of the season in Washington, or maybe only slightly better, you're not gonna to want to pay him $12 million. So then you decline the option, you let him hit free agency, and if you can bring him back for maybe six, seven million, you do that. If you can get him for even less, great. But that leads to a large predicament for the Steelers. And of course, there's plenty of time for them to make that decision, plenty of time to evaluate William Jackson. So. Again, time will tell in that regard. Now, chase Claypool to the Bears for a second-round pick. I didn't really want to see Claypool traded. Like I said, Pickett needs all the help he can get offensively with his weapons. He had Johnson, he had Claypool, had Pickens, had Friermuth, had Sims, maybe even a little bit of Gunnar Olszewski. Now he's down Claypool. So that hurts the Steelers' offense for the rest of the season. And they're already 2-6 and six with a terrible offense. Absolutely terrible. And now you're losing Claypool, meaning that this is only going to get worse for the Steelers offensively. I understand that they got back Chicago's second-round pick, which is more than likely going to be inside the top 40 a higher pick than they used to even draft Claypool so I get that from Omar Khan's perspective you know look we couldn't pass this deal up this is top value for Claypool we're almost getting a late first rounder out of him I get that and the Bears were desperate for a receiver so I get pulling the trigger not turning down that offer or letting it walk away but the Steelers now are short on talented receivers. You have Pickens, you got Deontay Johnson, Friar as a tight end, and then what? Nothing. A little bit of Sims, a little bit of Olszewski, you got nothing. So now the Steelers are in a predicament because in past weeks, teams had to game plan for Claypool they had the game plan for Friermuth. They had the p- game plan for Pickens and Johnson. Now, it's one less person that opposing defenses have to plan for, meaning they can focus more on Firemouth, on Pickens, on Johnson. And Matt Canada's disastrous offense is going to go from bad to worse because there's less incredible targets to try and spread the ball around to. Which is, like I said, I don't understand why the Steelers – made that move now had the Steelers traded Claypool and then went out and brought in someone to counter that move it doesn't have to be a big name it just could have been anyone better than Sims or Olszewski Then I would have understood, you know, you go out and make the trade for Claypool. You bring in someone for a day three pick. A little bit of a downgrade now, but it'll pay off sooner or later. But that didn't happen. So now you're going to be relying on Sims and Olszewski to step up and fill Claypool's void. Will that happen? Probably not. Why the Steelers think it's going to happen? God only knows. And that's where the Steelers organization has faltered time and time again because they make moves like this and they don't think about all aspects of it. And now you're going to see the Steelers offense suffer even more because of not having Claypool. They really are. It's going to be Terrible for the Steelers' offense these final nine games without Claypool. Worse than it already is. Just wait and see. So then, now that leads to the question what are the Steelers going to do with those three picks? Like Dylan and I were saying earlier, more than likely the Steelers are going to have three picks inside the top 45 definitely inside the top 50 those picks absolutely have to be invested well and they absolutely have to be used wisely and I say that but then we'll go out and see the Steelers draft a wide receiver with that pick that they just got from Chicago now The only way that I would be somewhat okay with that pick is if they were to use it and reunite Jordan Addison with Kenny Pickett. If they get those two together to give Pickett a little bit of confidence, then I won't necessarily mind it. But the Steelers don't need to draft a receiver in the second round just because of The fact that they feel like they've had success with drafting receivers in the second round previously one of those three picks needs to go on an offensive lineman particularly the first rounder draft an offensive lineman for God's sake first pick in the second round use it on either a corner or another offensive lineman the third one invest it in either a receiver or a corner. If Addison's there, you take him. If not, you go corner. That's the route the Steelers have to go. Otherwise, they're just going to continue to set themselves back further and further. Which again would lead to absolutely no accountability from Mike Tomlin, and that segues into The next topic here. This season has been horrid for the Steelers as far as accountability from Mike Tomlin. This is a team that is and 2-6. This is a team that is struggling tremendously on offense. And not only is Mike Tomlin not making any changes to the coaching staff as far as personnel. He is not making any changes as to who calls the plays. And he's not even making any changes as far as limiting player snaps. He's going to continue to trot out Najee Harris as a starting running back when he's averaging just over three yards a carry. You want Najee Harris to learn that that's unacceptable for a first-round running back out of Alabama? You start giving Jalen Warren more and more of his carries. I don't want to hear the excuse that teams game plan for Najee Harris and they don't game plan for Jalen Warren. This is the NFL, for God's sake. Every team out there plans for... Players three deep on the depth chart, especially at a position like running back where they get interchanged so frequently. Every team out there game plans for Jalen Warren and Najee Harris. The problem is that Najee Harris just doesn't seem like he knows what he's doing and is going out there and trying to run side to side as opposed to running up and down the field. And the play immediately. It comes to mind. Third and four for the Steelers. Najee Harris runs an out route from the backfield. Pickett hits him in stride. All this man had to do, catch, turn. He could have walked forward for a first down. That's how wide open he was. That's how close he was to the first down marker. What does he do? He starts dancing, stutter stepping The whole nine yards, and ends up not gaining a single damn yard. It went from third and four to fourth and four. And then you have Jalen Warren, who has said time and time again, I'm just a put-my-head-down type of person and hit the hole. That's what the Steelers need. See the hole, hit the hole, you run north and south. If you run into trouble in north and south – then you bounce to east and west, and as soon as you get out of trouble, you go north-south again. I don't know if Najee Harris was watching Le'Veon Bell's old tape or if he's still trying to be overproductive because of the offensive line last year. But what he's doing isn't working. And as a result, the Steelers' offense is suffering When Najee Harris is on the field. And I never thought I would be uttering those words. But they're suffering right now with him out of the backfield, in the passing game, and the running game. Because he's not helping them in any way, shape, or form. There's no accountability from Mike Tomlin as far as who is calling the plays. Now, Matt Canada did say that depending upon the scenario, they might have someone else calling the plays. I'm sorry, what? So you're going to tell me that on first and 10 at Pittsburgh's 23-yard line, Canada might call the plays, and then when the Steelers have it first and goal at the opposing team's 9-yard line, it might be Mike Sullivan calling the plays? What? First of all, how does it even make sense to have someone else besides your offensive coordinator, unless it's the head coach, of course. Unless it's your head coach, which it won't be for the Steelers because Mike Tomlin is defensive-minded, how does it make sense to have someone besides your OC calling the plays? Second of all, how does it make sense to have multiple people calling the plays on the same drive? What? That makes sense absolutely zero sense no team in the NFL even thinks of that or even considers it it's ridiculous how stubborn the Steelers are and unwilling they are to try and change and be innovative and creative the Steelers offensive staff was essentially designed by Matt Canada. Matt Canada was the one who, it just came out today, handpicked essentially the offensive staff, his offensive line coach, his quarterback's coach. And this was from Ray Fittipaldo talking on seven the fan just a few hours ago. Matt Canada was given the freedom by Mike Tomlin to assemble his offensive coaching staff. First of all, what had Met Canada done at the college level to earn the right to build his offensive coaching staff at the NFL level? Second of all, why is a head coach letting an offensive coordinator build the staff? I get Tomlin's a defensive coach, but Tomlin is the head coach. That needs to come directly from him omar khan and maybe a little bit of canada's input as to who each skilled coach is on offense matt canada should not be single-handedly picking his offensive skills coaches that's terrible from mike tomlin absolutely terrible and thirdly why is matt canada still employed by this team why there is no justification that is humanly acceptable as to why Matt Canada still has a job. This offense is a joke. They are the laughingstock of the league, ranked dead last in almost every offensive category. The Colts. Had a better offense statistically than the Steelers did. And they fired their offensive coordinator. Jim Harbaugh. John Harbaugh I was. Getting the brothers mixed up. John Harbaugh fired his offensive coordinator. Halfway through the season a few years ago. Because the offense was a joke. And it worked wonders for him. Steelers. Do something about Matt Canada. Look at the past few weeks. 13 points scored against Philly. 10 points scored against Miami. 20 against Tampa. 3 against Buffalo. 20 against the Jets. In those five games, the Steelers are 1-4. The only game they won was when they beat Tampa Bay. That is pitiful, the way the Steelers' offense is going right now. Absolutely pitiful. You're not going to win games with this BS. You're just not. 13 points isn't going to beat anybody. 10 points sure as hell isn't going to beat anybody. And then the fact that the Steelers continue to accept this, the fact that they continue to allow this, I mean, what are they doing? And Mike Tomlin was asked directly during this bye week if he expected any coaching changes to be made. And he said very shortly, no. And that was the end of his conversation. If Mike Tomlin does not realize that the offense is in desperate need of being fixed then something is clearly wrong and then the question needs to be is he fit to be the Steelers head coach still if Mike Tomlin doesn't realize that the Steelers have utilized three quarterbacks in the past season and a half And the best offensive production was when Ben Roethlisberger said, screw it, and drew up plays on the back of the football like they were 12 years old again in the backyard. If he doesn't realize that, then something's wrong. You have three quarterbacks. You have a Hall of Famer in Ben Roethlisberger, a decent NFL veteran in Mitch Trubisky, and a rookie who is currently struggling right now in Kenny Pickett but still has some potential, and none of them got it done with Canada's play calling. If you want to say, okay, you get why Pickett isn't getting it done because he's a rookie, okay, fine. If you want to say Trubisky isn't getting it done because it's his first year in Canada's offense, okay, fine. I guess I'll give that one to you. But there was no reason, aside from his lack of mobility, why Ben Roethlisberger should have struggled in Matt Canada's offense. And it happened. When Ben said he had enough of Canada and called the play himself, that's when the Steelers' offense clicked. And I honestly believe if it wasn't for Ben doing that last year, Canada might not have a job right now. Not that he deserves one by any means. But why does Mike Tomlin refuse to make these drastic in-season decisions when things are clearly not working well for the Pittsburgh Steelers? Like I said already, the record of Mike Tomlin having a, not having a losing season, that's not Mike Tomlin's record. That is Ben Roethlisberger's record. And I will not entertain any discussion saying otherwise because it's very clear that Ben Roethlisberger carried Tomlin to where he's at now. And Tomlin needs to be the one to make a statement to the Steelers fan base, to the organization and to the team. That mediocrity won't be accepted. Mediocrity will not get them anywhere. Sometimes I have this feeling that Mike Tomlin would be very satisfied if he went 9-8 and eight every year. Just so people can continue to shove down his throat that he doesn't have a losing season in his time with the Steelers. I really do. I think sometimes that's what his approach is. As long as we don't have a losing season, people aren't going to care. No. People want this team to compete in the playoffs. People want this team to win Super Bowls. They haven't won a Super Bowl since 2009. They haven't been to a Super Bowl since 2011. They haven't won a playoff game in God knows how long. They haven't even hosted a playoff game since 2017. The Steelers are in a very dark place right now. It has to change. Canada has to go. If that means redoing the entire offensive coaching staff, I don't give a damn. Do it. Get rid of Canada. Tell his goons to get lost. And start fresh With a new offensive coordinator, start fresh with a new quarterbacks coach, offensive line coach, whoever it may be. You start fresh entirely on offense and have them work with and develop Kenny Pickett. Because Matt Canada isn't going to do anything at this point other than ruin what's left of Kenny Pickett's confidence. I don't care that Pickett and Canada work together at Pitt, it's not working in the NFL, regardless of what it did at college. It's just not working. It needs to change. And if that means, like I said, cleaning house offensively, you do it. You don't look back. And if that's the case, whether it's Omar Khan or Mike Tomlin making those changes, as far as the offensive coaching staff, once those changes are made, Mike Tomlin has no say in who his offensive coordinator is, who any of those coaches are. That comes strictly from Omar Khan as GM and the Roonies. Because we've seen this before and we're seeing it now. When Tomlin handpicks his coaching staff based on who his buddies are, who he thinks deserves to have a job in the NFL, everything with the Steelers goes to shit. Time and time again. And the Steelers are not in a position anymore where they can afford to continue to have this happen. They just aren't because this fan base is getting more and more irritated. And sooner or later, it's going to be getting even worse because while I understand that this was supposed to be a bit of a setback year for the Steelers, a little bit of a rebuild retooling, if you will, if you had asked anybody in April, even in August, if you went up to anyone and said, if I told you halfway through the season that the Steelers were two going to be 2-6, and six, would you believe it? Not a single person would say that they believed it. Not Mike Tomlin, not Omar Khan, not any of the Roonies, not Ian Rappaport, not Adam Schefter. Nobody would have thought the Steelers would be 2 and 6 right now. If you would say 4 and 4, maybe 3 and 5, that might be a little bit more understandable. But nobody would have said the Steelers would be 2 and 6 and in as big of a mess as they are on offense. That was something that could not be predicted, but knowing that now Mike Tomlin needs to show that he's willing to step up and make drastic changes because the tiny, itty-bitty changes aren't going to do anything. And if this continues for the rest of the season, then Mike Tomlin is going to have big decisions to make in the offseason, both personnel and as a coaching staff. You're listening to the Three Rivers Talk Show here on the Bethany Online Radio. I thank you all for tuning in here on this sunny November afternoon in Bethany, West Virginia Hope you enjoyed the show here A little bit of fiery sports talk In regards to pretty much everything Except for the trade deadline There will not be a show next week On November 11th So the next one will be November 18th at 2pm I have to be involved in a an open house for grad school so once again no show next week friday november 11th the next one will be two weeks from now on november 18th at 2 p.m as you've been listening to the three Rivers talk show drew von Sayo signing off enjoy the rest of your weekend and we'll see you back here november 18th at 2 p.m right here on the bethany online radio